The Tough Love and Second Chances podcast is written and produced by Tony Bennett on behalf of Edgar and reveals remarkable stories of those who refuse to be defined by their disability. The power of the human spirit shines through with examples of how hope, courage, and the opportunity to express oneself through the game of golf makes for a combination that can improve and even save lives. With two generations of golfers already in the family, it would be natural for young Gail Owen Ne Young to pick up a club and join them on the Hampstead Golf Course on the north side of London, right? Well, let's not jump to conclusions. Gail did pick up a club, but with no real intent, and it was only when a friend bought her some golf lessons for her birthday that she started to play. Fast forward just a year and Gail finds herself in a doctor's office and on the receiving end of the words, well, you know you've got multiple cirrhosis. There was little by way of sugar coating. The words, although direct, came slowly, but hit hard. Please enjoy my conversation with Gail Owen. Tell me about how you got started in golf, Gail. My parents, my when my, my dad started, right, um, and my grandfather played, and my uncle plays, and I used to get pocket money for caddying potentially, and ended up just walking around with my granddad, <laughs> my dad. Yeah. <laughs> then my mum started. Um, and they've been members at Hampstead Golf Club. Oh, yeah. or they were captains together in 1979 and 80. And so, yeah, they, they played. Then my dad was secretary at the golf club uh, for about six, seven years, I think it was. And then when he – so I, I first – picked up a golf club properly when I was um, for my 40th birthday. Someone got me golf lessons. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> you pick up a golf club for the first time when you're 40? Yeah. So I, why didn't you try before? Was it just didn't like it? Didn't like no, it? I wish I had when I was younger because, I would, you know, our families played loads of sports, but there weren't really girls who played. Right. It was more boys. So if there had been another girl who would have played, I would have probably tried. And I enjoy it. But then kids and, you know, things. So I never thought of really had a go. (laughs) You say somebody gave you some golf lessons, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that. So who gave you the golf lessons? Were they, you know, what were the golf lessons like? How did it work? Well, the professional at Hampstead Golf Club, um, Peter Brown, I had lessons with him. So obviously because I work at the golf club and have done for 23 years, so just sort of didn't didn't actually play much. Had a few lessons, so it would be about 97 I started at the golf club. Okay. And it was the year before that I um, – had my golf lesson. Okay, so what do you do at the golf club? I'm mainly bookkeeping. Right. But it, I'm assistant secretary, so you get involved in the handicaps and competitions, everything really, membership. Yeah, did you start work at the golf club? Because my dad was secretary, 
he retired and they had a replacement. They had a new guy for I don't know why he didn't work out. So they asked my father to go back to cover. Um, and he, the new person had put all the accounts onto computer. Okay. And my dad does accounts, but he does not do computers. <laughs> I'd been made redundant and I'd found myself two other jobs. And then he phoned me and said, Gail, do you fancy working at the golf club a couple of days a week? So I did. And then I've gone from two days to three days to four days to five days. <laughs> let's just let's stick to your – so go back to your lesson now. So this is the year before you start at the golf club. Then you start to, to, to have a few lessons with mm-hmm. Peter Brown. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So how did that all work out? First lesson – did you feel it or did it take a few lessons before you started I, to get a sense of what it was like and what it was about? Yeah, I mean, I could hit I could hit the ball. I, you know, I've always played sports, so um, and I'm quite competitive. <laughs> I'm quite stubborn, I think, is the word, really. Um, so, yeah, I just sort of gave it a go and did my best. Okay. <laughs> And then you got, you got a thirst for it. You started to play more. Yes, definitely, definitely. And then I was trying to think when um, – I was trying to think because my youngest, Tom, would have been seven. And then when he was 11, he said that he sort of – he was mad on football – but he said he wanted to maybe try golf. So we did. Um, and we, we live in near North Middlesex Golf Club. So we joined there and um, he started to play. And he enjoyed it and it's a great game for, for juniors. So we, we haven't looked back really. <laughs> So was there, was there a time where all three generations were playing? Yeah. <laughs> good. That's, that's good yeah. to hear. I mean, my, my mom, who's 93, would um, – she sometimes says, I, go out in the buggy and just give it a go. When we go to Norfolk, where she comes from, about – probably about four years ago – I go to the driving range, so she comes with me and takes a couple of clubs and we'll just hit, you know, have a hit of a few balls. So not bad at 90. (laughs) Very good. There's not not many other sports you could do that. No, true. Tell me a little bit about your impairment. Okay. I was diagnosed with MS in 2000. I started, I remember, I was at work, I remember it so clearly, and I walked over to the pro shop to do something, and I I didn't know at the time, but I had double vision, and it felt like half of my head was different sizes, Um, and I literally just phoned my dad and said, come and pick me up, (laughs) something is not right with me. and so anyway it, that carried on I went to the optician who said you've got double vision so they sent me to the hospital um eye clinics whatever 
and had a CT scan, had an MRI. And I I noticed that um, with my leg also, it was like a delay. If I wanted to move, it just was a delay in my leg. Anyway, I don't dwell on things. So it got better. So I just sort of, you know, didn't think about it really. And then when I went to the neurologist to get my results, I went on my own because I thought nothing's wrong. And she just said, well, you know what you've got, don't you? And I said, no. (laughs) And she goes, well, you've got multiple cirrhosis. And I went, really? (laughs) Um, Because to me, that's all I knew was a wheelchair scenario. Didn't know anything more about it. So a little scary, to say the least. Um, Kids were 13 and 11. Um, And, you know, you just don't know what is going to happen, really. So um, I've got relapsing remitting, which is probably, which is, is the best one you can have because you can have a relapse and you can get better. Thing, but I think the thing is, you can get caught up with if you have something, you can get caught up with. I feel really tired, but then if you're working, have got young children, and running home, you can be tired. So, I, I don't, I never want. I don't don't want to say it is because of this that I am tired. So I try to think the other way and just say, I'm tired because I've done this, because I've done that. You know your own body, so you know when you are overtired and you know when you have to just take it easy and not do things. So that's what I do. It sounds like you've got a pretty good coping mechanism for that, that you kind of, like you say, you understand your body and you understand... Yes, I mean... Maybe the signs, is it? Um, I mean, it's like the neurologist says, I mean, if, if I have anything, um, I get tingling down my arms and stuff like that or in my hands. Um, but... And that sort of comes on and off. But sometimes it's like things have to, apparently, things have to go more than 24 hours before they um, sort of count it as maybe a relapse or whatever. But I had, I was trying to think, probably in 2000, it's probably a three or four, I had um, something going on in my head. It was, I, I don't know what it was, but it just did not feel right. Um, and I, I, they said to the, I would, I, they said to the, go to the doctor if you have something which has lasts more than a day, whatever. So I left it about five days, as you do, just going, I'll be better tomorrow, I'll be better tomorrow. And then I went to the doctor and, um, they referred me on and it took seven months to get an appointment. And when I when I went back and went to this appointment, I had a locum, so didn't know any of my stuff. 
And I thought, you know, I'm just going to try and look after myself as much as I can and just do what I can and listen to my body. And that's kind of where I, what I do. So from a practical perspective then, what do you do to look after yourself? I, I, I understand that you listen to your body. I understand that you, you know, you look for the warning signs, so to speak, of being overtired or mm-hmm. like, like you've mentioned. But on a kind of a day-to-day basis, do you have some kind of process, like maybe the food that you eat, the rest that you take, the exercise that you do, do you kind of build that in and it's just part of your normal day now? It's kind of a bit of a trial and error stuff because I was doing probably three, three, four years ago with my daughter, we were doing um, like hit training, kind of almost like um, interval training. Um, and that started off um, this, it's called El Hermity syndrome in my legs. It's like electric shocks that you get in your legs. Um, so I didn't do that anymore. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It's yeah. just trial and error of what you can do. You do something and then it's like, mm, that's a bit too much. Maybe my body's telling me, no, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's it. I just try and I, I don't know. I, I found it quite, I know when we went, I had my medical and then I had my medical in Portugal. I was, I got quite upset when I couldn't do one of the exercises they gave me because I try never to think of myself as unable to do something. Yeah. So, yeah, so that that's just how I think. So... Is medication part of what you have to do as well? Do you have medication? I don't don't actually take any medication. Choice. um, When I saw my neurologist, I have a new neurologist for the last two years, and she said to me about medication, and I said, if I can, I would prefer not to be on medication, only because... I feel that sometimes the side effects just cause other problems. So and it might mask something that otherwise is important. So um, she said if, if I had been diagnosed now, I'd be on medication. No. But because it was 20 years ago, they don't. They didn't necessarily then put you straight on, or maybe there's different medications now than there was 20 years ago. I don't know, but that's what she said to me. What was that first? You can pick the time frame. What was that first hour, first day? What was that like? And the, and the first person you had to tell, because you would you at some point you would have had to tell those nearest and dearest to you the first person I, I told I phoned my husband and said I've got this. you know I mean it's just you're just in shock really because I had no idea I don't think that way um yes it was and it was very and it wasn't until 
I suppose she said, she did actually say to me, do not go onto the web and look at everything. Go to the MS Society and read that. Don't, because there is so much, not misinformation, but there's so much sort of negative information and so much of this. So it was just a process of learning the different types and the different how it could affect me and stuff and what can you do you can't do anything you can you have to cope with whatever you're given so I would say that probably I would probably say about the first month or six weeks because with the kids the kids were little it, it was just like, what are we going to do? How are we going to cope? Because you don't know what's going to happen. But that was, again, then when I sort of said to myself, look, oh, you know, because they say you can get fatigue and you can get this. And it's like, yeah, but I'm working. I've got kids. I'm, I'm going to be tired. So, but you know now there's a sort of, there's tired and there's fatigue, which are two different things. You look after yourself because you've been, you said you've been doing hit with your daughter. <laughs> I try. I try. You play other sports. I dance. Oh, you dance, you say something. Yeah. yeah. So where does that all fit in with the MS deal? I mean, does that help? Is it? I think it helps. And I think, but I think it's, I think probably, I think it helps but I think I probably compensate without knowing it. Like when I'm dancing, I think with the balance and things, I think you probably just stand differently or, you know, I think it probably automatically you just change things. I don't know. But I've danced for like 14 years, so... Um, and it's fun. <laughs> it's quite fun. <laughs> a good reason to do it. Yeah, exactly. It's the only reason to do it. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. You would be classed as having an invisible disability. Yes. I, I look at you, I've, I've seen you play, and I know that you have an impairment. Yeah. Because otherwise our eligibility team wouldn't let you play. So I know that that's the case. You've got an invisible disability, mm-hmm. and there's other people like you in regular golf, is what I'll call it. Yes. Because that, that's what you've played for the vast majority of your golfing career. You've played regular golf. You yeah. go out with the girls on a Thursday or a Tuesday yeah. or Saturday or whatever it is that you go play. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk to you in a, in a second about coming to disabled events. Okay. But so – What's it like at your golf club? Maybe if you don't want to say your golf club, what's it like out there? Do you think there's a lot of other people out there that are already playing in golf clubs, already embedded in golf clubs with invisible disability? Yes, there must. I mean, yes. But, you know, people who sometimes I think other people, if you tell them that you have, I mean, and I've experienced it myself, where people go, you're not disabled. You know, why are you playing in this? Why, why, you know, I have actually been told that. 
that I shouldn't be playing in these things because I'm not disabled. It's terrible. I mean, just, you know, you do because you feel like that they, I don't know, it just makes you feel like they think you're a fraud. Right. Because your members at your golf club, I guess there's a percentage of them that know that you have an impairment and there's a percentage. It was somebody who knew I had an impairment. Tell me about the first time you turned up at a disabled event. Right. I know that you had to go through your kind of your assessment, etc. Yeah. What, what number one? What are you expecting when you went to that event? You know, what was your kind of in your mind? And then, did it kind of meet your expectations? Disappoint? Exceed? Or what was it like? I didn't really have any idea of what I was <laughs> going to, because obviously Kirsty had um, when I met Kirsty. We were just, I'd played with Kirsty and then we were talking and she was telling me about Amy and I said, I've got MS. And she went, great. And I went, and I went, that's not the reaction I usually get. And so she goes, right, you are coming to the Warwickshire and you are joining. And so I was like, so I was sort of not bullied, but you know, it was, you're going to do this. So that's what I did so I had no expectations knew nothing I knew that obviously she told me that Amy played and everything but had no expectations of what it was going to be at all um so obviously when I had my assessment and I'm not sure whether I passed it or failed it because I got my card <laughs> um and it was just it was great it was just Everyone is so, they are just incredible human beings who have overcome, you know, again, some things you can see and some things you can't, but some of them have, like, okay, in a comparison, they've come over huge barriers and mental, so mentally strong. Just what can you do but just admire them? fantastic what advice would you give to somebody so you can again you can pick the time frame on this one but okay so there's going to be somebody and it might well even be during the time that we've spoken right found out for the very first time that they've got ms right says they'll be in a fog uh, as you kind of described earlier yeah Yeah. what the hell's going on here yeah i don't quite get this Mm. Now, you've got the benefit of 20 years or so of coming from that fog, going through that fog, and now looking back on it. Yeah. And obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, sometimes we might do things differently. Mm. I'm not asking you what you'd do differently. I'm asking you what advice would you give to that person who right now, today, has got to sit down to tell their husband or to tell their wife or to tell their kids they just had a diagnosis this afternoon that says they've got MS. Yeah. Deep breath. <laughs> it takes a while to process because you don't know you don't know what the future is going to bring. So you have to give yourself time 
just to take the information in and as I said good advice to only look at certain websites that are just you know the MS Society I think there's another one I can't remember what that was because there's so much there's so much information you can look at and you can't take it all in so just stick to you know that they're they're there to help there's also your local ms societies um they have uh groups which you can join i mean i didn't because i was at work but i mean if i had been at home then i think the support of other people is invaluable because i think you know you can share your experiences everybody is different everyone will have different symptoms so and severity of symptoms and there's always a way i believe that you can I don't know how to say this um there's always a way of um getting help there's always aids out there you just have to find them and and you know it's everybody's journey is different that's really good advice what can golf do gail to help people get more involved in the game and make it easier for them to access the sport if you have a member who is a disabled golfer, that is the best way that you will see that even though someone only has one arm, it is an inclusive that they can hit the ball. Yeah. And, and by seeing that, I think we may have, I'm not sure, a disabled golfer may be joining us, in which case I will pass him on to you. <laughs> but... um you know, I think it's until somebody sees them by saying to by saying to them, "I played with a guy with one arm," or with the use of one arm, they're like, mm, "Yeah." Until you can actually see somebody doing that, they can't comprehend. So is that is that something that it's a useful tool? Because I think if you have. If you have golfers, if you have golfers going to an open day, I think that raises awareness. But if, if you know, you have, I mean, some of the members, if they go and play in an open day, people will see. And and so by seeing, they're not scared about it. Yeah. And they see, well, hang on, he's got one arm and he can hit it better than I can. Yeah. So. That you, you don't need to say anymore. It, it's just by seeing that. And so if, if people go to these and, you know, put their names down for open days and go, then I think that that is a really positive thing because people can see without it being, oh, look at me, sort of we're trying to do this and we're trying to promote this. It's just we're here. We're, we're a golfer. So it, it's not – it's just keeping it – but we're all golfers together. Yeah, you know, you're a junior, whatever. <laughs> absolutely. Anyway, nice right. to see you. Take, Take care. care. All the best. All the best. Bye.
This was an Edgar player story, supported by Ping, helping golfers to play their best. For more information about Edgar, please visit edgargolf.com. Stay tuned for the next Tough Love and Second Chances podcast. Ping. Play your best. Play your best.